Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. You know, I think we live all of our lives in the knowledge and or in the denial of impermanence. We know that we're not going to live forever. The people we love, the people we hate, most of the things we hold dear will simply fade away. And at the same time, uh, we can be so very resistant to change and the idea of change. We wind up taking certain things for granted, even the very planet that we live on. To invoke the, the Goldilocks principle, our planet is just right for life. We've got the right ingredients, the right crust, the right temperature, the right moon, the right star, the right core, the just the right celestial neighbors. We've largely lucked out when it comes to near-Earth objects. And five major extinction events later, here we are thriving within and in some cases beyond the portion of the Earth's atmosphere and climate that we evolved to thrive in. But when will it all end? When will this place become uninhabitable to us? Some of the threats are so distant that they're almost impossible to really weigh. Will we even be us when our species encounters them? Others, however, are far more pressing. Yeah. So I'm going to try to give you all an example. I'm going to take this from the personal to the macro. Okay. okay. Yesterday, I had to go to a retirement planner. Uh, I didn't have to. I chose to. Mm-hmm. Um, but a human or a website? It was a hu- I, I did the website first, and then they said, you might want to talk to a human about this. Okay. And so I went and had a meeting. I sat down. We, like, looked at forms and stuff like that. But, you know, it's not, I'm 40. It's not the kind of thing that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about other than just having jobs that have 401ks building up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I just really, you know, haven't thought – in a future-oriented way like that before. Mm-hmm. And then immediately after that, I came home and I started doing the research for this episode, <laughs> which is essentially about planning for global annihilation, right? For for getting ready for the world, for Earth specifically, to be uninhabitable for us as human beings. Well, and hopefully, I mean, the optimistic spin on that is preventing these the events and preventing the kind of cascading effects that could leave the Earth uninhabitable. Yeah, but as we get, as we will get into, some of them are inevitable and there's literally nothing we can do about them. Mm-hmm. But those are luckily billions of years away. Yeah, some of these things are just so far off, it's pointless to worry about them. But some of them uh, are worth worrying about and we're going to spend some time with those as well. You know what's kind of interesting is in your intro that you presented just now, you touched on the very first topic that you and I ever worked on together, which is the Goldilocks principle. Do you remember I wrote a script for a brain stuff episode like four years ago that you performed and it was you and Kristen Conger. Oh God. Yeah. I remember that. And it was about the Goldilocks principle. Yeah. And then, uh, then the stuff about mass extinction, my first official episode as a co-host of stuff to blow your mind was about mass extinction. So this this is interesting. Yeah, that that one was interesting because I remember the the topic was great, uh, and yet even though you know I'd had plenty of uh, interactions with uh, with Conger previously, that was when I got to realize, oh, we have no on air chemistry together at all. <laughs> well, uh, that was actually that that was sort of like along the lines of what we were trying to do was we were trying to test out all the various mm-hmm. people who did on screen stuff to see who did have chemistry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and while we were filming that, I was like, oh, I can, I can tell <laughs> we don't really have uh we don't have a lot of it. I don't know. People can go watch it and judge for themselves. Yeah, it's yeah, out it's there. On the brain there. Stuff yeah, again, site. the content's yeah. still good. It's, it is. Yeah. Uh, so let's, 
yeah, in this episode, we are going to discuss some long-term concerns, some short-term concerns uh, regarding the uh, habitability of uh, the planet Earth, as well as some sort of random concerns thrown in there. Uh, I guess you can sort of think about it in terms of um, – a really complex board game, right? Where yeah. you have you have sort of the early game uh, uh, opponents or early game threats you have to deal with. You have the end game stuff, you know, the real doom counter type uh, scenarios, yeah. and then you just have random events that may pop up and just end the game. Yeah, you're using a lot of Arkham Asylum uh, phraseology <laughs> yeah. here. I like it. I like it. Uh, yeah, and and also to be clear, the reason why I was really interested in covering this. Uh, even though we somehow ended up pairing this together with zoophilia on the same day as topics that we were going to discuss. It's actually because I'm working on this sci-fi horror story and I want it to be about uh, trans humans returning to an uninhabitable Earth. Ah, so I started thinking yeah. to myself, like, when will Earth be uninhabitable and what will it look like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a this is a, a, a common trope in uh, in science fiction, the idea of of the world becoming poisoned, of, of humans, of course, moving beyond the Earth and then coming back to it. Uh, yeah, and in some cases, the Earth is gone. Um, uh, if, if I remember correctly, in in the Dune books, oh. uh, it's referenced that the the original Terra, the original Earth, no longer exists. Is that right? I didn't even know that they acknowledged uh, any connection to actual like humanity. Okay. Yeah. Well, the uh, like the Atreides are supposed to be um, descendants of uh, of the Greeks. Is uh, that well, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. But um, but I believe it's it's uh, what God Emperor of Dune in one of the uh, the many lectures. Uh, that the t- the title character gives, he refers to the original Earth and how it no longer exists. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. It may be referenced elsewhere in the in the saga as well. But but yeah, this episode is kind of like how do we? To what extent can is that unavoidable? Yeah. Uh, the eventuality of Earth being gone or Earth being just there, but but nothing that we could live upon. And what can we do about especially some of these random and short term threats to the habitability of Earth? Now, one of the Long-term effects. This is not something we need to worry about tomorrow or technically in the next hundred years, but it is going to be a concern. It's probably one of the first things most people think of, right, is the death of the sun. That's right. Yeah. Like the sun just eventually turning into a red giant and swallowing the planet Earth. Yeah, again, I would say don't, don't lose any sleep over this, but it does exist as, as the, like the late game, game ending doom counter situation. Totally. This is the, the point at which the game has to end, uh, or may have to end. We'll, we'll get into some of that uh, presently. So, I, I like to think of the sun as kind of a dot com era business. It's running on a huge influx of funding. But destined to eventually burn out. Eventually the money is gonna, gonna go away. Eventually the energy is going to go away. So our sun has been going strong though, as a business, as a star, as the, the center of our solar system for 4.5 billion years. And by most estimates it has, it has another 5 billion years left in the tank. So it's got a lot of pivoting left to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, well, the, the pivots are key because, yeah. uh, yeah, the pivots are the, are what, uh, what we're going to have to worry about. <laughs> so when the core runs out of hydrogen fuel, it's going to contract under the weight of gravity. Uh, so again, think of like a bloated business that suddenly the money's not there to support it and it has to downsize. Right. Um, 
this is where the metaphor kind of becomes more difficult to engage here because uh, some hydrogen fusion is still going to occur in the upper layers at this point. And as the depleted core contracts, it heats up. And this heats up the upper layers of the sun, causing them to expand. As the outer layers expand, the radius of the sun will increase and it will become a red giant. Mm. Now, the radius of the red giant uh, sun would be a 100 times what it is now, lying just beyond the Earth's orbit. Some scientists have estimated that this would vaporize our planet, but there's also a good chance that it would push Earth and its moon outward after consuming Mercury and Venus. Now, obviously, there's, there's again, nothing to lose sleep over here. Um, you know, five billion years, that's longer than the Earth has existed, and the span of the human species is virtually nothing in that well of time. And, of course, there's a lot that can and will happen before the sun turns into a red giant. Long before this happens, say in a mere 1.2 billion years, the Earth will grow hot enough to boil away our oceans. Then after all this takes place, after the red giant phase, in 9.5 billion years, the sun will collapse into a white dwarf, and the remaining dead worlds will continue to orbit around it. Eventually, the white dwarf will go dark, and there'll be this inevitable uh, uh, collision between it and another black dwarf, and this will blast apart the remnants of our solar system. This, according to uh, an excellent article in Forbes, uh, of all places, uh, Ethan's, Ethan Siegel's How Our Solar System Will End in the Far Future. I actually read the same piece, and uh, Siegel says, when our sun was newborn, this is this is good uh, to get some perspective on it, mm-hmm. it only had 75 to 80 percent of the power that it has right now, but the properties of planet Earth, the flora, the fauna, the ocean, the atmosphere, all of that stuff has allowed us to adapt, Right. Also, the astrophysicist Robert Smith, not to be confused with the frontman of Cure, uh, <laughs> says even just the aging of the sun will accelerate global warming to a point where Earth's water just simply evaporates, as yep. you mentioned earlier. So there's not a whole lot we can do about that. The atmosphere will be laden with water vapor at that point, uh, and it's going to turn out like the water vapor will act like a greenhouse gas, which we're obviously going to come back to later in this episode. The oceans will boil dry. But all right, let's think really cosmic here for a second, okay? Let's like zoom out. Uh, let's pretend like we're Galactus from uh, from Fantastic Four comics or something here, okay? What if we could harness comets and asteroids so they gravitationally slingshot past Earth but move us into a wider orbit away from the sun? That might be possible in the future. Um, and I believe uh, on the Kardashev scale, that's like one of the sort of latter parts of the scale, right? If you, if you can har- uh, harness cosmic entities. Well, I mean, first of all, you, if you can harness all the power of a planet and then if you can harness all the power of a solar system. Uh, so, yeah, just at that level, you would conceivably have the, the ability to, to move the planet around, to find a new orbit for it and in some of the – the more extreme cases, you know, I've seen it argued that, you know, you could take the planet and move it beyond the solar system. Certainly when you get into those upper levels, uh, K3 and K4, uh, you're talking about, you know, godlike power. Yeah. Uh, where on one level, it, it becomes easy to say, oh, of course we could do this because of the amount of power that we would have. And then on the other, you have, you have to say, what would we be if we had that much power? If we had the power to harness, uh, all, all the power of a solar system or, 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 you know, scales beyond that, then what would, what would our values be? What would we need? Would we care about moving the earth? Or exactly. would we just be like, well, let it burn. We've got these crazy spaceships now. 
Well, another theoretical way to move the Earth is to build a planetary sunshade that would have a similar effect and it would move it out into a further orbit. But hey, guess what? Even if we can do that, the red giant phase of the sun is, is it's going to get Earth. <laughs> like even if we can move it far enough out that we can somehow uh, use it to mitigate climate change, for instance – it, it's it's not going to matter. That red giant is eventually going to swallow us. Well, um, not not by all Dep- models. Depends though. on how far out yeah. I guess you move it. Yeah, but even if we escape, what's the world look like afterward as we're slouching towards extinction? Okay, so astrobiologist Jack O'Malley James of Cornell University actually sketched out a sequence of extinctions over the course of four billion years. So here we go. All right, at five hundred million years from now, from right now. That's when the sun is going to start getting hotter and CO2 will be sucked out of the Earth's atmosphere. That's going to make all of the plants die off because they can't photosynthesize. Following that, large vertebrates will go, then the small ones because there's no plants for them to eat. Mm -hmm. Then the only remaining animals will be marine invertebrates along with microbes. Maybe some insects that can eat dead plants will still be around, but mostly the only creature – uh, the only creatures that don't need to eat plants are going to be able to survive this. The last non-microscopic remaining animals will probably be those tube worms around the deep sea hydrothermal vents. Then at one billion years out from now, that's when the oceans start to boil. Uh, and then if that doesn't kill the microbes, the actual boiling of the oceans, the CO2 levels eventually will fall so low that even microbial photosynthesis will end, Okay. Then at 7.5 billion years out, that's when we're talking about the red giant engulfing Earth and the moon. But what if Jupiter's moon Titan suddenly became warm enough for life to evolve? So maybe that's the next place where there's going to be a habitable society. Well, it, it comes back around to the, the the frequent argument you see from uh... – uh, from various uh, astrophysicists and futurists, and that's just that the, the long, long-term survival of the human race uh, depends on us uh, expanding beyond Earth. Absolutely. Now, some additional concerns for the the, the, the future, uh, in many cases the far future, uh, one is magnetosphere loss. So Earth's magnetosphere is essentially a magnetic bubble that protects the Earth from charged particles and plasma. Earth's solid inner core and liquid outer core, this generates the field, okay? It generates the magnetosphere. And according to the dynamo theory, differences in temperature and composition in the two core regions drive this powerful dynamo, uh, emitting Earth's protective electromagnetic field. Now, some scientists theorize that in about two to three billion years, the uh, dynamo might half, uh, leading to the decay of the magnetosphere. And remember again how essential this field is. It's absence on planets such as Mars make colonization a challenge. Like, it's hard to imagine life being able to to really take a firm um, uh, hold of a planet that does not have a magnetosphere in place to shield life. Yeah, it protects us from so many of the hazards of yeah. space. It's one of the the key aspects of the, the Goldilocks principle. You know, one of right. the things that makes this planet just right and it's uh it it can be kind of frightening or sobering to think about the fact that this is not something that will last forever. But what about the moon? I've seen a lot of people talk about the moon as being like, well, if we could go anywhere, if climate change gets too bad, let's just go to the moon. <laughs> well, um yeah, that well the moon is probably not a great option for for living on either. Uh 
but but it does play into another uh, long-term concern, and that has to do with the uh, perturbation effects. So our large moon ensures climate stability by minimizing changes in planetary tilt. Uh, if our planet didn't have a tilt, it wouldn't have seasons. Likewise, a severe tilt would result in extreme seasons. Uh, as we've d- discussed on the show before, the moon is drifting away from Earth. Uh, eventually, given you know a, a, enough time, it will be uh, just far enough away to make a total solar eclipse impossible. Yeah, I've actually got some stats on that. So the moon is moving away from us at 3.78 centimeters a year. Between 1.5 and 4.5 billion years from now is when it's going to stop stabilizing our tilt. Yeah, the, so the, the moon pulls on the Earth and the Earth orbits the sun, resulting in a torque that causes the moon to move a little bit farther uh, away from the Earth and slow the planet's rotation. Rotation slows by 1.4 milliseconds per century, but in 50 billion years' time, the moon will orbit in 40, uh, in a, at a rate of 47 days as opposed to the 27.3 days we know today, and the 24-hour Earth day will be 47 days long. And the moon and Earth will then become tidally locked as well. Luckily, we've already established that well before that 50 billion year mark, uh, the sun's going to eat both of them. (laughs) So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So the idea here is that uh, once the stabilizing of the Earth's tilt stops, the poles are going to tip to a point where like the north and south poles are going to be where the equator would have been. And this is going to cause obviously extraordinary climactic effects. Yeah. But it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, we have just the right moon uh, for life to be able to thrive here on Earth. So how does this explain Transformers 5 then? Because <laughs> in that movie, the planet Cybertron just parks itself right next to Earth and I think destroys the moon. So, hmm. I mean, clearly they thought through the science on those, Well, I right? assume they brought in Neil deGrasse Tyson on <laughs> yeah, that, right? He, must he, have. he had to have been science advisor on that. <laughs> the, I'm just being silly here. Yeah, obviously those don't make a lick of sense. But – when this whole thing happens with the tilt, some regions of the planet will still be protected by the sun. So it would be possible to still live on the planet after this perturbation effect. So uh, the what would be bad, though, is that some parts would dip to below 100 uh, degrees Celsius for part of the year. The only thing that would be able to survive would be microbes inside these cold trap caves. And then even 2.2 billion years after that, those caves then will suddenly become too hot. So... Yeah, it's no win scenario. Yeah, you'd have to. This is when humans have to start living in the big uh, pyramids, uh, the last redoubt of um, William Hope Hodgson's The Nightlands. Maybe that's what that hidden vault inside the pyramid was that they just found recently. It's yeah. it's specifically designed for when the moon st- <laughs> moon stops affecting our tilt. I do recommend any, anyone who is interested in sort of uninhabitable Earth sci-fi. William Hope Hodgson's The Nightlands is is yep. fabulous, if kind of challenging to read. Because it it depicts uh, an age in which humans will have to live in these artificial structures uh, on a dark earth, like everything else is just cold and dark. Uh, but they're, I, b- I believe, they are using thermo uh, thermal energy to uh, to maintain themselves in yeah. that book. Hodgson's stuff is just fascinating, especially when you consider the era that he lived in yeah. and how far ahead he was thinking. Indeed. Why don't we take a break and then we come back? We can uh, talk about some just random concerns, things that we can't particularly track for how they might end life on Earth. All right, we're back. So this first one is is a major threat, uh, and it is a proven major threat uh, to life on Earth. Uh, we're talking about uh, near-Earth objects, or NEOs. 
So impact events are possible factors in three out of five major extinction events here on Earth. Space collisions occur all the time, and most of them don't make too much noise, or at least those that have occurred during human history haven't. That's because in space, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> well, but of course, the thing is, Earth is in space, too, so we're That's counting true. the Earth colliding with things. We're, yeah. talking, uh, we're counting the moon colliding with things, etc. But even when they do make noise... We've been very lucky. For instance, consider uh, 1908's uh, Tunguska event, which uh, hit a sparsely populated corner of Siberia rather than a major population center. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been pointed out that a mere four hours of planetary rotation would have placed the bullseye on densely populated St. Petersburg instead. Yeah. So instead of having this just this devastating crater and this blast, uh, you know, heard over vast distances, instead of it occurring in the middle of nowhere, what if it had occurred in uh, in St. Petersburg? What if it occurred in a major center of, of human population? And you like to think, like, in these uh, big-budget blockbuster disaster movies that, like, we'll be able to chart the course of these things. We'll know that they're, when they're coming and we'll evacuate cities, right? But... Mm? Well, I mean, this, this, is, this is where it gets into something I've talked about before. Like, this is one of those one of the few areas where uh, where you can conceivably save the world um, because the odds are that a large NEO will come into play in the future and humans will hopefully be in the technological and cultural position to identify it, to track it and to mitigate the situation. There are a number of different uh, methods that have been proposed for deflecting an incoming NEO. Uh, and they range from, you know, blowing it up to just sort of nudging it out of the way to, you know, harvesting it, uh, et cetera. You send Bruce Willis and Steve Buscemi up there, uh, <laughs> uh, Peter Stormare. Yeah. And, uh, problem solved. Well, uh, hopefully, I think we're getting to the, the stage where we realize we only need to send Buscemi, Buscemi, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is one of those few areas where, uh, the, the work of NASA and other space agencies, their work to track NEOs and, and, and eventually mitigate them. This is one of the few areas where concentrated human efforts can actually save the world. And of particular interest here are asteroids that are 6.2 miles or 10 kilometers in diameter or larger. These are extinction class NEOs. So here's some stats that I found on this. A third of those thousand mile wide asteroids that are hurtling across Earth's orbital path will eventually strike us. But luckily, the rate of which that they will strike us is one in every 300,000 years. Now, for instance, similar to uh, the Tunguska event in 1989, a small one, way smaller than that, crossed our orbit just six hours after Earth had passed through. Uh, this thing had the kinetic impact force equivalent to a thousand nuclear bombs. So we've talked before, uh, specifically in our, um, rods from God episode about, uh, dropping basically like metal telephone p- poles from outer space as weapons. Uh, the impact, just the basic kinetic impact of something from outer space hitting the planet is considerable. So something that small would be the equivalent of a thousand nukes. Yeah, I remember in our inter- interplanetary war episode, we talked about that a bit. Like having yep. having orbital superiority over a planet, it gives you just tremendous power without even having uh, any explosives or nuclear devices. Just the ability to drop things if you have those things it, with you. I think we we concluded in that episode, if you have a ship that is capable of interplanetary travel, that alone is enough of a weapon to destroy an entire planet. Yeah. Just by crashing it into it. Yeah. Yep. 
It's not like Star Trek where the Enterprise like just like, you know, like a like lands in the lake or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> now, another area to concern uh, getting away from NEOs, uh, it comes it gets down to the issue of uh, near Earth supernova. So this is another concern that's even more insidious in some ways because there's not much of a way to stop them. Uh, other, other cosmic threats include gamma ray bursts caused by the birth of a black hole or the collision of two neutron stars. It's been estimated that a 10-second burst originating within 6,000 light years could deplete up to half the planet's ozone layer. And such an event uh, might have played in the uh, Ordovician mass extinction. Oh, okay. Well, another figure that I read in the various articles that we looked up for this, supposedly the Andromeda galaxy is on a multi-billion year collision course with the Milky Way as well. So not only are we worrying about the planet, but our entire galaxy is in trouble too. Yeah, yeah. Things things fall apart and things have a way of uh, colliding together as well. But all of this stuff is either random or a long way out, right? Like we've established like the asteroids, there's a pretty low percentage chance or hopefully we'll be able to track it. And, right. and that's not random, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's not something that like we know for sure is going to happen. The yeah. sun we know for sure is super far away. Yeah. Like the long-term issues are long-term issues that may be unavoidable and, and we can't lose much sleep. Over. As far as the random issues go, I, I do believe there is a, a real need to uh, to focus on NEOs. And I think that like basic planetary protection is essential there. But still, it's the kind of thing where, yes, someone could make an argument uh, for, well, we'll just let the next generation figure that out. Yeah. You, know? you remember um, when we were kids in the 80s and the Reagan administration developed the Star Wars system, my first reaction was I confused it with the movie Star Wars. Yeah. My second was that I assumed that it was about asteroids, that mm-hmm. it was the whole defense system was designed to protect us from asteroids. Turns out, no, not uh, at all. To protect no. us from us, yeah. as, it t- as it turns out. Yeah. And we'll get to that threat. So what about shorter term concerns? Like, let's narrow this down, right? Like, when are we going to have to get off Earth, basically? So here's some good news. Okay. Uh Mammal species tend to only last about a million years on average anyway. So we as human beings have already had 200,000 years. So we got 800,000 years left. That's pretty good, right? That's more than we've already had. So yay. Well, <laughs> that of course is not counting in, uh, counting on uh, the various ways that we are uh, working uh, at our own destruction. Exactly. Uh, Stephen Hawking though, uh, recently, he, he actually gave an interview in the last couple of years talking about this stuff. He is a proponent of us freeing ourselves from Mother Earth, as he calls it. And he says, quote, it will be difficult enough to avoid disaster on planet Earth in the next hundred years, let alone the next thousand or million. All right. So we all of a sudden went from like billions of years to the next hundred years as being like potential problem. And he says this is either nuclear weapons or the aging sun acceleration. And and this isn't the sun swallowing the earth. We're talking about global warming here. And as we've already discussed, Hawking says if man doesn't make the planet uninhabitable or the sun, then we're going to encounter a supernova or an asteroid or even a black hole. We didn't even touch on black holes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right, let's talk about it. Climate change. Some starter facts here. I didn't know this. 1880 is when scientists first started keeping track of global temperature logs. Last year, 2016, we're recording this in 2017, last year was the hottest year 
the world has seen since scientists started recording global temperature logs. Now, overall, the planet has warmed 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit or 1.26 degrees Celsius in that time. Let's try to keep those numbers in mind as like a point of perspective as we're looking toward the future. And I want to talk briefly, too, as we get into this, about climate change as I guess I would define it as like a rhetorical communication problem. So this article in The Atlantic where Robinson Meyer argues there's three shifts that are going on right now, primarily here in the USA, but globally as well, with climate change that make it hard to communicate. The first is that the consequences of climate change are severe and devastating. We've got a lot of examples. We've given so many examples on this show before. Uh, We're talking about mega droughts. We're talking about sweltering summers or the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef, among others. Secondly, Some people are trying to address climate change with things like solar and wind as energy or, say, electric cars as a way to attempt to stabilize the amount of carbon that's released in the atmosphere. But we have to acknowledge that as of this recording, the country that Robert and I live in, the United States of America, is undermining climate policy because we've abandoned the Paris Agreement. Yeah, there's a there's an episode that uh, Joe and I recorded a few months back uh, back titled Science Communication Breakdown and, and we get into into this topic a fair amount like getting into the the idea of like okay, we have we we have the science of climate change and yet we have a large portion of the population that uh, that denies it or or is in opposition to it. Why does that occur? Why has this topic become politicized when it is a matter of scientific consensus? Yeah. So I would I would refer uh, listeners back to that episode if, if you want a more like in-depth tackling of that uh, of that issue. Yeah, I think so. What we're facing here are two opposed visions of the future, right? And neither are really scientific in nature. One is economic, one is political, and they're in opposition to one another. So all of this leads us to this article that actually, uh, you know, we talked at the beginning about the impetus for doing this episode. I was unaware of this, but it just came out this July in New York Magazine. It was written by David Wallace Wells, and the article's title was The Uninhabitable Earth. And in this, he argued that parts of Earth will become uninhabitable by the end of this century. Many climate scientists and science communicators strongly disagreed with him on this, and they said that this was a doomsday scenario, it wasn't realistic, and that it wasn't supported by evidence. They also said that his article doesn't identify his sources either. Now, I want to step back for a second. I read through his whole article and a number of rebuttals to his article, okay? Uh, I'll provide my thoughts later, but he definitely cites sources and he provides links to a lot of statistics that he uses throughout the piece. Now, either he added those after the criticism or his detractors are exaggerating their complaints. Uh, I didn't fact check every one of his sources, but it looks like he at least attempted to provide some kind of logical evidence for his claims. Well, I, based based on uh, what I was looking at, it, it seems like a lot of the complaints were basically making the charge that you were you're presenting this as a as a scare piece that yeah. you're and that that is not how one needs to communicate the topic. Uh, and and based on previous uh, research for the communi- science communication breakdown episode, I mean I, I can agree with that. Like it, that does not seem to necessarily be the way to reach new minds about the topic. 
uh, it's just, I mean, it could be useful, I guess, as a rallying cry for people who are already convinced. And, and maybe that's the prime purpose of the piece. I mean, one has to take the, uh, the readership into mind here. Like, where, where was the article published and who are the, uh, the intended readers of the piece? Yeah. So the article itself is problematic for climate scientists and, and, you know, because of the reasons we outlined above, obviously, but also because they're trying to be very, very careful about how they communicate climate change with the public. They want to make sure that the facts that are presented are absolutely indisputable. And they also have research that shows that we respond better to hopeful messages instead of fatalistic messages. Yeah. So that's along the lines of, I think, what you and Joe covered in Communication Breakdown. This is my take on it, okay? I would argue that climate change communicators, they're facing a branding problem. And this is just from my experience working on this show and, and doing science communication. There's so much evidence for climate change that we've encountered just while we've been researching other topics on this show, not even intending to talk about climate change. Oh, yeah. Right? It comes up all the time. Yeah. Uh, when we did our Svalbard episode, it was all over the place in there. Uh, when we've talked to Mara Hart about coral reef biology, it was all over there. It's it just It keeps coming up. Every time I'm presented with that evidence, it, it, it's even more convincing. Some people, though, just have a knee-jerk response the minute they heard, they hear this terminology, climate change, right? They just assume that it's automatically uh, disinformation for some reason. Now, if you just present the evidence of the impact, they seem to believe that, but you don't attach those terms to it. It's like a, for some reason it has a branding problem. In rhetoric, this is what might be called an ethos problem. There seems to be a negative connection between the terminology and the quality of its character. And that might be because of doomsayers like Wallace Wells, right? Because of scare pieces like this. Yeah. Which, which again, I can see where a scare piece would be, would be beneficial to people who are, you know, who, who, who don't deny the, the scientific consensus that, that, just need something maybe to, 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 as a rallying cry, you know, as a reminder of what's at stake. Um, you know, I, I don't think we should sugarcoat topics. Right. But again, the argument is there that if you're looking to reach new minds, if you're looking to, to connect with people, uh, who are in a state of denial or doubt, then this is not the best tactic. Well, let's go through his piece, uh, and we'll, we'll, I'm, I've outlined his claims here along with the counter arguments against them. I do want to cite him, uh, specifically here. This is a quote from the article. He says, this article is the result of dozens of interviews and exchanges with climatologists and researchers in related fields and reflects hundreds of scientific papers on the subject of climate change. Later on, he says, it is a portrait of our best understanding of where the planet is heading, absent aggressive action. Again, my personal take on this, I read through the whole piece. I'll say that outside of the problems that we're going to outline with this evidence, the prose itself reads like a rant. So along the lines of like just saying like, oh, this seems like a scare piece. It, it, it sort of reads like that. It's, it's difficult to understand it. And he bombards you with information in this way that just isn't persuasive. And I think that in and of itself is problematic if the goal is to change readers' minds. So he says the likely warming expectation from a scenario is presented by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this was in 2013. Now, they say we're looking at somewhere between a 2.6 and a 4.8 degrees Celsius 
shift by the time we reach 2081, somewhere between 2081 and 2100, that period of time. Now, I think it's worth noting that Wallace Wells argues the upper end of the probability curve actually runs as high as eight degrees. So he goes way higher than this this uh, study that he cites. They say highest is 4.8. He goes all the way up to eight degrees. That's way higher than their prediction. The Paris Climate Accords, just to give you like a, again, like some perspective here, all they're trying to do is get us to the point where we only go up by two degrees in that period of time. So you see just how much of a difference there is in these it seem like relatively small numbers, right? Two, four, eight. But it is, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Now, Wallace Wells also starts by saying that the sea level rise isn't the worst of our concerns with global warming. This is because there there is a lot of uh, attention paid to sea level rise earlier in this year in scientific articles. He says, yes, cities will drown, but uh, other parts of the world will become uninhabitable by the end of the century. Quote, most of the scientists I spoke with assume we're going to lose Miami and Bangladesh within the century, even if we stop burning fossil fuels within the next decade. He also says that cities like Karachi and Kolkata would be so hot that they would be close to uninhabitable. And he wonders if this is why we have this obsession with apocalyptic fiction, right? All the zombie movies or Mad Max movies, end of the world scenarios. He says maybe this is a collective result of displaced climate anxiety. Okay, I know we're hitting you with a lot of heavy stuff. So here's mm-hmm. a fun aside. I'm doing the research on this yesterday and I've been listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin in the last week because I saw that Thor Ragnarok movie and they play immigrant song. In oh it. yeah, I heard it, uh, it had a starring role. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's prime. So I'm listening to Led Zeppelin and while I'm prepping these notes here, when the levee breaks comes on, <laughs> that was, that was pretty eerie, like worrying about flooding and all that. Uh, and then like the soundtrack just kicked in there. All right, back to this study. He also says the world's permafrost is going to send its methane into our atmosphere as it melts. And that is going to accelerate the planet's warming in the, in just the next couple decades to come. He uses the thawing of the ground around the Svalbard vault as an example. We talked about this in our Svalbard mm-hmm. example. Now, he also says that permafrost contains 1.8 trillion tons of carbon. That is more than twice as much as what is currently suspended in Earth's atmosphere. Okay, so that's his argument about the permafrost. His detractors say, all right, yes, permafrost will emit methane. And yes, methane is a potent greenhouse gas. But scientists don't actually think that that much is going to escape in this century. There was a study that was published in 2015 that found that permafrost melt would only release about 5 to 15% of its carbon, and that that would be in the form of carbon dioxide and not methane. So that's substantial. It's still something we need to worry about, but it's not as dire. Wallace Wells says, actually, 
methane is 34 times as powerful as CO2, so we should keep that in mind. Another example that he brings up in his piece, do you remember uh, earlier this year when the um, there was that crack in the ice shelf? Oh, yes. I think it started in May, and then it broke off and calved off into this like massive iceberg. Mm-hmm. He used that as an example as well along the lines of the permafrost. Um, he also said that satellite data shows that the planet has warmed twice as fast as we thought it would. He adds a qualifier, though, afterward. He says that, quote, the underlying story was considerably less alarming than the headlines. This was one of the things that he had to update in his article afterwards, after so many people complained. There's a footnote at the end of the article that lets you know all the things that were changed afterwards. So while he warns us about the satellite data, he also kind of backs up and he says, "Eh, I know, like, that was kind of scaremongering. In actuality... It seems like uh, those satellite models have tracked closer to what we predicted. He also says carbon dioxide levels. So remember earlier they said, oh, it's going to be carbon dioxide instead of methane. Well, he said carbon dioxide levels, if they go up, they're actually going to depress our brain functions on a global level. Hmm. Other scientists argue back and they say this seems like it will only be an indoor problem, not an outdoor problem. I don't know. I'm not a climatologist. Now, in his own defense, Wallace Wells argues he didn't want to be misleading in his portrayal of the research, but he ran his piece by climate experts and he wanted the piece to survey worst case scenarios because he believes, quote, the public does not appreciate the unlikely but still possible dangers of climate change. So that seems like he's he's making his sort of rhetorical purpose clear here, right? Like he he acknowledges that he was uh somewhat being extremist right his main concerns in the conclusion of the piece are that climate change is going to lead to a threat to our food supplies in the next 100 years there's going to be a risk of increased violence as temperature goes up and that fears of long dormant viruses awakening from the arctic permafrost will come true this is a plot of fortitude the tv show oh, yes. that i keep talking about on, on here that that's one of the things that happens there because they're on svalbard uh he also mentions unbreathable air and the danger of extreme heat combined with high humidity now this is something i've never heard of before but it's related to climate change it's something called the wet bulb temperature concept have you heard of this well this relates to the human body's ability to cool itself right yeah exactly so uh the idea here is that we cool our skin by sweating right which is how we stay alive in the worst heat i uh, i can tell you uh, here in Atlanta, it was like almost 80 degrees yesterday in November and I walked home two miles. I sweat quite a bit. Okay. That was me staying alive in that heat. When you get above 33 degrees Celsius or 91 degrees Fahrenheit, our threshold for heat stroke comes up and that can be fatal. Based on that IPCC worst case scenario that he's citing, a third of the U.S. population would be facing a day or more of such dangerous conditions. The typical summer day would exceed this heat stroke threshold. So that's concerning. Yeah, I mean, especially when you take into account the limited ability of of uh, various people, various portions of the population to yeah. stay cool. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, the term's weird, right? Wet bulb temperature. Well, it turns out that it comes from wrapping a thermometer in a damp sock. The idea there is that that will actually reflect both heat and humidity simultaneously. And uh, Wallace Wells argues in his piece that the resulting dehydration that comes as an effect of all of this is going to cause chronic kidney disease across our uh, entire culture. So we're just seeing cascading effects here as we expected. Yeah. Okay. A little bit more about this. His detractors say that the post-climate change world is actually going to look a lot like the world currently looks like, except it's going to be more unequal and more impoverished. So essentially they're saying, we're not, you know, a hundred years from now, the world isn't going to be uninhabitable. It's just going to be less equitable. Uh, they argue that he glosses over reasons why climate advocates actually have some hope. They also make one important point. His article's citation of those IPCC numbers, not only are they like way higher, but he also doesn't necessarily clarify between Celsius and Fahrenheit in his story. Uh-huh. And there's huge discrepancies there. More likely though, because of trends like the Paris Climate Agreement, human society will bend emissions downward without hitting these worst-case scenarios that he's outlined. Even in an email with the Washington Post, Wallace Wells conceded, the most likely scenario is about a 2.5 to 3 degree Celsius change by the end of the century. Since 1880, we've only seen a 1.26 degree Celsius change. So that's still pretty significant if you think about it. So even if we're able to drop carbon emissions to zero tomorrow, like if we made waved a magic wand, right, and all of a sudden all cars, all, all of our technology stopped emitting carbon, that's obviously not going to happen. We would still be dealing with climate change for centuries afterward. So our only option at this point is to adapt to it as painlessly as possible. And How do we address this? Well, one proposal is to develop technology that takes CO2 out of our atmosphere to dampen the greenhouse effect. That seems interesting but also problematic to me, right? It's like the technology got us in this problem in the first place, right? And we'll build more of it and we'll use that to sap out the bad stuff. But then what will be the repercussions of that? Well, it's it's one of those scenarios where you imagine that you know, a little more hot water because the bath is too cold, a little yeah. more cold water because the, the bath is too hot, and then eventually the bath is overflown. So let's try to ground this in some more recent studies uh, that are maybe a, a little more closer how things are going to shake out in the next 100 years. A study published in the June issue of Science by the Climate Impact Lab, they argued that actually climate change is going to have an economic impact first – The poor are going to get poorer and the rich are going to get richer. Great. Uh, This will impoverish the poorest communities in the United States first. And they outline that the South, the Southwest and communities along the Gulf Coast are going to be the ones that are hit the hardest. Cities and coastal suburbs, however, are going to just get richer. Contributing to this is that ocean rise that he addressed at the beginning. We're looking at an ocean rise of two to three feet by the year 2100. That could displace up to four million people around the world. So essentially, sell your beachfront property, right? Because it's going to be underwater soon. Another study out of Columbia University's program on climate science awareness and solutions finds that summers in general are becoming hotter than the average recorded between 1951 and 1980. This will lead to increased heat in the subtropics. It's going to cause more droughts, 
increased floods and it's going to start impacting our human health. You know, like when you, uh, you, you look up the weather and you see like those, those warnings, it's like extreme, uh, air quality or something yeah, like that. Yeah, we get those, those, uh, orange air quality warnings a lot here. Yeah. yeah. I think we're going to be looking at more of those from what this sounds like. And then, Conservative f- estimates, even like the most conservative estimates about climate change are saying we're looking at more droughts across our land as well as more natural disasters, things like storm surges, wildfires and heat waves. So in terms of our larger question here, when will the earth become uninhabitable from a climate change perspective? It all seems to come down to how high the temperature will rise and how quickly within the next hundred years. But it does seem like there are current parts of the world that are inhabited that will no longer be habitable. But the good news, again, is that there are efforts in place. There are plans in place that can mitigate the effects, that can slow it down. Yeah. If we have the willingness to stick to them and to and to in- insist that they be enacted. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's a matter of policy involved here. There's a matter of communication. I, I definitely think – go back and listen to the episode that Robert and Joe did on science communication breakdowns because I think that is crucial right now with this yeah. stuff because – Hey, the sun thing, that's a billion plus years off, right? This, we're talking about a hundred years. All right, we're going to take one last break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss uh, one final threat to the habitability of the planet. And I imagine you can guess what it is. All right, we're back. So there are, of course, a a number of other scenarios to consider here, Uh, various technological threats. Uh, AI is certainly a crucial one and one that we're hoping to explore in a future episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But then there's there's also good old uh, nuclear war to consider. So, okay, combined, we're talking about Skynet and Judgment Day. Yeah. But uh, but let's let's just focus on on just the the sheer destructive power of nuclear weapons for a minute and the sheer number of nuclear weapons. This brings us back to our earlier episode from this year about the doomsday clock. Yes, indeed it does. So according to the Federation of American Scientists, uh, as of early 2017, there are still 14,900 nuclear weapons in the world. Now, you can compare that to uh, the the maximum number we've ever had, and that was 1986, where there were 70,300. Uh, but that's even because uh, Superman threw them all into the sun. And oh yeah, Superman yeah. I believe, for a quest I believe for that's peace. how that went down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so but the the important thing though is that no matter how many nuclear weapons you have, even a small scale nuclear war would have intense effects on climate. So NASA scientist uh, Luke Oman, uh, he's predicted that the detonation of 100 Hiroshima sized bombs would inject upwards of five megatons of black carbon into the upper troposphere and result in a one degree Celsius or 1.8 degree Fahrenheit fall over uh, the three years to follow. And for two to four years afterward, rainfall would decrease around the world by 10%. And then larger exchanges, it, it gets even uh, more terrifying. So this is, this, is, uh, this is interesting. In 1945, Los Alamos laboratory scientists, they predicted that the detonation of a mere 10 to 100 super bombs, what we'd call a hydrogen bomb today or a thermonuclear weapon, uh, they they said that that would be enough to uh to do just significant uh irreparable damage to the planet um so not only like as we're recording this like we're in the middle of again like heated rhetoric with north korea about nuclear mm-hmm. weapons right and like not only are we worrying here about the fear of 
nuclear threat, but we're also like uh, we we need to worry about like the effect that this is going to have on the planet afterwards. Yeah. Like, yeah. What, what's the world going to look like afterwards? Yeah, and this has been a, this has been a uh, a longstanding. Uh, uh, warning from scientists. So one issue here is that you have, say you have 100 megatons of fission per bomb. You have 100 bombs. That's enough to generate 10,000 megatons necessary to raise the background radioactivity level to dangerous levels, according to the 1953 Project Sunshine study. The exact predictions as to how a nuclear war would impact the environment, these have varied over the years. Using modern climate models, scientists uh, Brian Toon and Alan uh, Robach, they theorize that even a regional nuclear war would cause a marginal nuclear winter for everyone. Uh, nuclear winter, to remind everybody, this the idea here is that the the uh, the, the mass, the, the burnt carbon ejected into the atmosphere by these explosions, by the, by the burnings of, of cities and forests, that this would essentially shroud the earth and reduce the amount of sunlight reaching the earth. You know, th- this is an aside uh, just to bring a little levity, I guess, to this. <laughs> but uh, so Stranger Things, we've talked a lot about it on yep. the show before. Everybody's talking about it right now because the second season just came out. The Upside Down is essentially – like a a nightmare scenario of of post fallout, right? Because you're looking at does, like everything's mm-hmm. blacked out. There's constant. It looks like dandruff is kind of falling from the yeah. sky, but it's it does have a, a nuclear wasteland kind of feel to it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, according to uh, the 2007 findings from uh, Robach and Toon, they said that if India and Pakistan, for example, were to each launch 50 nuclear weapons at each other, the entire globe would experience 10 years of smoke clouds and a three-year temperature drop of approximately uh, 2.25 degrees Fahrenheit, 1.25 degrees Celsius. Yeesh. Well, <laughs> this is like real gallows humor here. But like – so is that going to counteract climate change then? Um, You know, I've, I've seen people make that joke in the past. Yeah. And – I mean, you can make the argument, yeah, that it's like one bad thing counts right. as not the other bad thing. Yeah. But, but, but then you have all these other effects too. I mean, obviously the loss of life involved, the, uh, the radioactive uh, pollution. Uh, so I think it's very, it's very difficult to make a, a straight faced case for that. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, th- this study, this 2007 study, uh, this was one of, uh, the factors that the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, took into account when they advanced the doomsday clock two minutes closer to midnight at the time. Yeah, which is, you know, part of what we were talking about earlier this year. All right, so we've just presented you with all the scenarios we could think of, from the sun to asteroids hitting us to climate change and nuclear war. Yeah, now granted there are a lot of a lot of uh, possibilities that we didn't get into. We didn't get into your gray goose scenario, your green goose scenario, uh, or some of the more uh exotic ideas, uh, you know, destruction by an alien force that right. reaches our planet, things of that nature. Uh and there are other there are also a whole there are a number of other cosmic scenarios as well that have been thrown out, but I feel like this gives us a nice overview of the the long term, the short term, uh and the random events, the sort of Irreversible cosmic uh, threats, as well as the the, the man-made uh, threats of nuclear war and climate change. So, what should we believe? The worst-case scenarios that are prevented in front of us, or the hopeful messages that will get human beings to hopefully be more proactive about their part in this? I mean, the big takeaway I've got from this is that we need to be even more proactive about climate change than 
even the Paris Accords. Mm-hmm. And nuclear weapons are a much bigger problem than in terms of just a, a war, right? Like they're they're going to have like an overall horrible effect on the entire planet. Well, I think one way to look at it is to think of it in terms of, of personal human health. And I, this is an example that I think gives hope and also is um, concerning too because – you could think about, all right, so worst case scenarios are presented for human health all the time. Sure, yeah. You know, if you, uh, if you drink nonstop or, and or smoke nonstop, then this is what will happen to your body. Here are some examples of what has happened to other bodies. And in some cases, those can be helpful. They can say, oh, well, I, I better not do that. I'm going to, I'm going to cut it off. Uh, uh, I'm going to cut this level of my destructive behavior off at this point so that I don't get to there. Right. And, you know that that can that could be helpful for uh, for human society if we realize well, yeah we definitely don't want to get to this point so let's figure let's figure out a way to at least scale back yeah and uh, you know we've seen that say with uh, uh, with the with the reduction of uh, nuclear warheads in the world right even though we still have way too many especially when you think like the relative short amount of time that it's actually been in which we got rid of like. Uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but basically 60,000 warheads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 impressive, even though there's a lot more work to do. I mean, but the other side of the coin is that we see countless examples of human health where when presented with the data, we still don't do anything, you know, yeah. because we're still so short-sighted in how we interact with our lives. And that applies to our personal lives as well as is globally. So we, we could think, yeah, yeah, cl- climate, climate change is, is a threat. Uh, nuclear weapons are a threat. I hope somebody does something about that one day. It's kind of like saying, yeah. yeah, one of these days I'll get into shape and start eating right. Right. Yeah. That's what it makes me think of uh, from <laughs> personal perspective. You know, maybe I need to lay off the pizza. Mm-hmm. Also, maybe I need to lay off the carbon emissions. Yeah. Uh, all of this reminds me of that episode. I'm going to circle back around the one that we did uh, way back in May of 2015 on mass extinctions. Uh, in that episode, I talked a lot about this book by Annalene Newitz called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive Mass Extinction. Mm-hmm. And her argument there is that we need to, uh, A, scatter from Earth in the long term, B, adapt to climate change, and C, remember our history so that we can ensure our species' survival. This reminds me of The Expanse, which we've done episodes on as well, right? So where do we go? Well, NASA conducted a $200 million study in the year 2000 that reported a colony could be dug under the moon's surface and covered to protect its residents. Now, we're talking about short term here. Remember, we talked about way (laughs) in the future the moon isn't going to be an ideal place for us to go to. But if not our moon, then there's other possibilities such as the moons of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, or Mars might be a possibility, or even more possible, an orbital habitat that's constructed from resources that we extract from near-Earth asteroids. But again, you're getting closer and closer to a Kardashev scale level that we just don't have that kind of technology right now. Yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to the Goldilocks uh, uh, conundrum, though, where you have all these things that are just right on Earth. And when we start expanding outward and trying to imagine ourselves establishing humanity on other planets or other um, cosmic bodies, we're faced with just how imperfect yeah. all of our options are compared to what we uh, evolved to thrive in. How much more work it's going to be, too. Yeah. 
And then, what, and, and then how, how does that work stack up with the work we're faced with now to just add some more years to the, the planet's shelf life, you know? Yeah. Like what is, what, what's, what's easier? I mean, granted, neither of these things are, are, are easy, but all of these things are hard. But is it easier to, um, to reduce the number of nuclear uh, warheads on the planet, to uh, to uh, mitigate the effects of climate change, or to figure out how to establish a new Earth on a, like a radiation scathed uh, uh, planet uh, elsewhere in our solar system. Yeah, that is a very good point. Yeah, when you weigh the uh, cost benefit analysis, there it really you know from a capitalist perspective <laughs> uh becomes obvious what the answer is there's also the question which we always bring up on the show what if we become transhuman you know we could develop technology or genetics that could change us into another species that could totally survive these changes yeah well okay wallace wells though this is interesting this is an interesting one to leave you with he said in that piece and again remember his piece was a little scaremongery he spoke to some scientists with a point about the Fermi paradox, which is another thing we talk about on the show a lot. Mm-hmm. And they said, maybe the reason we haven't encountered intelligent life yet is because the natural lifespan of a civilization is only several thousand years old. So remember, I started this off by telling uh, uh, the stats on how long mammals are known to survive right. for. That's not talking about civilization. Yeah, civilization brings with it its own complications, uh, namely the risk of self-destruction. Yeah. So maybe civilizations have emerged, developed, and then burned up, but it's all been too fast for them to ever find one another. Uh, so... While we can start seeing the devastating effects from climate change in as soon as the next 100 years, it seems like the actual planet won't be uninhabitable to us for 500 million years, right? Like the climate change effects are going to be bad, but there will be parts of the planet we can live on. It's just going to be a matter of even more disparity than we're already looking at here, right? Because the rich – are obviously going to want to live in those parts that are nicer. So it's the it's less the prospect of an uninhabitable Earth and the prospect of a less habitable Earth. I think so. And that can be pretty uh, pretty terrifying in its own way. Absolutely. Okay. I hope we did this uh, topic some justice. It was uh, a little bit rough uh, there going through all of those statistics and just kind of looking uh, – Looking at the sort of Damocles hanging over all of our heads, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm glad we did it. I think I think I learned something. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What are your thoughts on these various uh, threats? to the planet we call home. You can get in touch with us a number of different ways. Find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, uh, who knows where else. But uh, on Facebook, we also have a discussion group called the Discussion Module. You can find that, join it, interact with other listeners as well as the hosts uh, as uh, themselves. And uh, hey, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes going all the way back to the very beginning. You'll find videos. You will find blog posts posts and links out to those social media accounts we mentioned. And if you want to write us a letter the old-fashioned way, you can type us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
I'm gonna go get some more.